Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels podcast, in which we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday from now until June 1st, 2016. Now, this week we're looking at the story that came in at number 67, specifically X-Factor number 87, and we are rejoined by Anthony Stauffer, who we last heard discussing Daredevil Man Without Fear. Welcome back, Anthony. Pleasure to be back, Blaine. All right, so some of the details with this, just to get the technical stuff out of the way. X-Factor 87 was written by Peter David, penciled by future Marvel editor-in-chief Joe Casada, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Marie Javins, lettered by Steve Dutro and Richard Stockings of Comicraft, with editors Kelly Corvess and Bob Harris, under editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco. The cover date was originally February 1994, and the release date was on or around December 15th, 1993. And as we said, it came in at number 67 in the series. So from there, we need to go through, you know, significance and plot synopsis. The plot synopsis of this, I think, is pretty straightforward. Something major has happened to X-Factor, including witnessing the injury of Professor X, Charles Xavier, and as a result, their government liaison, Val Cooper, has forced them to meet with a psychiatrist, who we eventually learn is Dr. Leonard Sampson. So John Wilson and I were mistaken in our discussion of Marvel 2-in-1 Annual Number 7. Doc Sampson shows up twice in the series. So, here he is again. So that is the stripped-down plot. Very astute. I must say, one thing that was interesting for me is you said it happened after an event. Seeing as this was released in 93... Yeah, released in December 93. Yeah, released in December 93. I was 13 at the time and really not even reading comic books. And then looking back and only reading this one issue again right before we started doing this today, they keep on making reference to this huge event that they've all witnessed, and I have absolutely no idea what the event was. I'm assuming it was something that put Professor X back into a wheelchair, but I cannot be 100% certain. And to be honest, we might as well go through our personal histories with the story right now. I used to read X-Factor when I was collecting comics in the teens, and I started when it was still the founding X-Men that were the members of X-Factor, after Angel had become Archangel. And then following the storyline when Cyclops ended up giving his, sending his son to the future to save his life, and his son eventually became Cable, even though we didn't know it then, I'd heard that the series was going to be changing while they were shaking up the entire X-Men line of books. So the writer I was used to was no longer going to be on the book, the artists I liked were no longer going to be on the book, and the characters I knew were no longer going to be in the book. So I stopped reading the last issue before Peter David took over as the new writer. So this is, to date, my first issue of X-Factor under Peter David, and I've, in the end, only read maybe half a dozen. At this point, I read the ones that crossed over with Civil War, and there may have been some that crossed over with other events, I think Secret Invasion. But that's it. This is the first one in the original run. Taking it almost comedically one step further, this was my first major introduction to most X-Factor characters. I had seen references to them across other titles, and I'm sure I had to have read some X-Factor tie-ins at some point, but I truly didn't know the origin of a lot of their powers, nor did I really understand a lot about their characters. So jumping in on an issue where all that we seemed to do was explore all of their mental deficiencies was kind of an interesting take for me, I will not lie. Yeah, I was already familiar with every one of these characters in some degree before reading it. I was probably least familiar with Guido, a.k.a. Strong Guy, but I had read appearances with him before. I mean, he first showed up in New Mutants, 
I've read the entire Chris Claremont run of New Mutants a couple of times. I think Quicksilver is possibly the character that everybody knows best, generally speaking. He's, yeah. he's had the highest profile of them at any rate in comics and in movies. I mean, yeah, he was only briefly in Days of Future Past. He will be coming up in Age of Apocalypse, but I think he had more impact than Havoc did in Days of Future Past. Or in First Class, sorry. Or Madrox the Multiple Man did in X3 The Last Stand. Can we just pretend that X3 The Last Stand never happened? And we don't have to pretend. That's the best uh, part about Days of Future Red Past. <laughs> <laughs> Easily the best part of Days of Future Past is those last few minutes that said X3 doesn't exist. And we get to the horribly, horribly scary plastic surgery that Jon Stewart has apparently undergone over and over again. <laughs> or Patrick Stewart, sorry. So, launching off, again, seeing as I hadn't really read much X-Factor, and I really wasn't even paying attention to the date this was released, and the Ren and Stimpy play on the beginning was, you know, a beautiful, beautiful blast from my past, as I remember being in junior high school watching Ren and Stimpy, and it was the huge cutting-edge at the time so that was you know it was always nice for me to see and sort of the memories and seeing how you know the comic books of those days or i guess always comic books are just trying to take the popular media at the time and incorporate it in so that was pleasant to see yeah it was good and what what this really is it's almost like a series of vignettes where you get maybe three or four pages per character and we just see them interacting with doc samson even though we don't know it's doc samson yet the only hint is well there's two hints, really. A, he's a psychiatrist in the Marvel Universe. The list of existing characters that fit that bill is pretty short, and the fact that they go out of their way not to reveal his face tells you it's probably an existing character. And B, his speech bubbles are trimmed in green. The third hint, if you can call it a hint, is that this is a Peter David issue, and Peter David had a very long run on the Incredible Hulk, and is the first one that really and truly focused on the psychology of the character. And that psychology emphasis is loud and clear here. I'd say it's more apparent in this issue than in any part of his Incredible Hulk run. See, and again, uh, I haven't had much exposure to Doc Samson at all. So I was sitting here reading this entire issue, just waiting for it to be a supervillain setup. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Doc Samson did fall on the good side of the coin more often than the evil side. More often? He started as a kind of an adversary. His original appearance was when he came up with a way to cure Bruce Banner of being the Hulk, and he did that. You know, he pulled the energies out of Bruce Banner, so he was no longer going to be the Hulk. But then he sucked those energies into himself to show that he could be a hero. You know, he decided to become a superhero by stealing the powers of another hero. So it's... the goals were there. He was kind of heroic, but he's always been a little messed up as well. Oh, fair enough. But again, as I said, I was just waiting for a super villain build-up. So when I saw it with Samson at the end, there was a part of me that was disappointed. I'm probably never going to read another X-Factor issue again unless there's something else going on here, so there wouldn't have been any follow-up on either side. Prevented me from reading the Wikipedia, I guess. <laughs> yeah. By all reputation, Peter David's X-Factor run, this initial run here, is phenomenal. If you look at the Visionary series, Peter David's X-Factor is the only set of X-Factor from the original run that's actually been collected in color as X-Factor, or not just as an X-Men crossover. Most of the issues leading up to that are available in black and white through the Essentials. Hmm. Well, getting into the comic, we see, uh, what's her name? Rain? Yeah, Rain Sinclair, or Wolfsbane, one of the founding New Mutants. And she's playing with a Newton's Cradle in the psychologist's office. Sitting there, and the beginning actually just kind of is being used to set up the fact that they're seeing a psychiatrist. And less about any problems that Wolfsbane has, and more about just 
exploring the fact that they're seeing a psychologist, psychiatrist rather. So starting off, again, not going to lie, seeing as this was pretty much my first introduction into X Factor, it took me a bit to kind of get the idea of what was going on here and realizing that it was after some major event, as well as the fact that they reference Xavier being horribly, horribly injured to the point that Wolfsbane thought that he was going to die. And then it does some things to set up relationships. Pretty much uh, what I took out of this whole Wolfsbane part or the beginning part of it was just the fact that she, you know, is a kid and she is prone to sort of, how do you say, fall for the leaders and things like that because they reference Havoc and Professor Xavier exclusively within that. Mm -hmm. And they make, you know, even though... It's probably not supposed to be, it's not in a sexual way, but they bring up the love and the admiration that she has for them, and probably this, to a smaller extent, the crushes that she's had on. Yeah, and if you go back to her first appearances in New Mutants, it, it's more of a father-daughter relationship with Professor Xavier. She did have a bit of an unreturned crush on Cannonball, who was the co-leader of the team, so again, it was the authority figure. So it's, brief summary of all of this is, these are nice character pieces, and they will mean a lot more if you know about the characters. Most likely. I mean, following Rain, we get Quicksilver, and I would say Quicksilver's pages are probably the highlight of the issue. I would have to agree with you there. Even though I have had exposure to Quicksilver, I really did appreciate this sort of, the way that they presented him, especially having, you know, the idiosyncrasies of his father, just acting like he was above everybody else, but him not thinking that he was being pompous. Him just simply stating that he acts like he's above everyone else simply because he is above everybody else. <laughs> yeah. And he points out not everyone can raise arrogance to the level of an art form. That's something he does. And it's, I like the implications. There's a lot of characters with super speed powers that Quicksilver has, but you rarely see them actually dealing with the impact that has on their day to day lives. I mean, you've got Jim's big ego singing the ballad of Barry Allen, which I think is a great one. Mm. But that's not on the comic page. That's, Filk, or, you know, fan fiction based folk music. Yeah. But the best conversation that I've got here, it's sort of his last page. I think it's the head of the issue when he's saying, Tell me, doctor, have you ever stood in line in a banking machine behind a person who didn't know how to use it or wanted to buy stamps at the post office and the fellow in front of you wants to know every single way he can ship his package to Istanbul? Or gotten some counter idiot at Burger King who can't comprehend Whopper No Pickles? Well, yes, I suppose. And how did you feel on those occasions? Impatient, irritated, a little angry sometimes. Precisely, because your life is being slowed to a crawl by the inabilities or inconvenient behavior of others. It's not a rational or considerate attitude to have, but there it is. Now imagine, Doctor, that everyone you work with, everywhere you go, your entire world is filled with people who can't work cash machines. That's, that's just setting up who he is and why he's been such an arrogant and abrasive jerk the entire time we've known him in comics. And, you know, that actually is one of those rare insights that you get into the speedster characters because they'll very, very commonly talk about how the speedster characters think at a rate faster than anybody else. And even up till now, I'd have to say just from the comics that I've read, it's just very, very recently that they've ever even started to explore any of the implications of that quicker thinking. If you look at the new relaunch of Superman as well, that was kind of the first time that I've personally ever seen or sorry, rather within the New 52, where they simply said that Clark's brain works so much faster, so he is a genius. 
just because his brain works so much faster. And here, you know, way back in the 90s, we're getting the exact same implication uh, with Quicksilver. And, you know, I think that's very, very significant and probably before its time and looking at the character and looking at the way these speedster characters interact. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll i admit there's a lot of the Flash run that I haven't read. I've essentially read what's in the Showcase Presents volumes and I haven't gotten to the Trial of the Flash yet or Trial of Barry Allen. But and the only other instance I could think of where they really deal with that is an issue of Blackest Night. I believe it was the Blackest Night event where Barry Allen just throws out an offhand comment to a couple of people who aren't speedsters going, do you understand how difficult it is to even slow down enough to have a normal conversation? I mean, we see the great uses of the power. Like, if you go back to the JLA run that was kicked off by Grant Morrison, you know, you'd see the Flash chasing some guy across four continents, and the first panel, someone's dropping a vase, he catches the guy, beats him up, brings him to justice, and goes back to that panel you saw, or that vase you saw in the first panel before it lands and catches it, after catching the bad guy. So it, it is nice to see that depth where it's just the world around him is driving him bonkers because the rest of the planet is in slow motion. Yeah. It's like they say, before dating someone, you want to know who they really are. You put them in front of a computer with a slow internet connection. That's <laughs> I had never heard that one before, but now that it's in there, I'm thinking back to all those days on dial-up. Just from looking, the other thing that they reference with Quicksilver is his complete refusal to wear an X-Factor uniform. And I had never even noticed that in any of the pictures that I'd ever seen that Quicksilver actually just maintains his Quicksilver costume, whereas the rest of X-Factor has specified X-Factor outfits. Yeah, I think all Quicksilver ever does, uh, when he switched from villain to hero, he changed it from green to blue. Yeah. But I can't think of any other significant changes to his uniform. He's also wearing a suit with running shoes, and though I appreciate the fact that he has to wear running shoes because he's Quicksilver, I still do absolutely hate that look. Yeah. Suits do not go with running shoes. Well, maybe if you have a long coat and a sonic screwdriver, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so from there we go to Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Polaris, who... Actually, I think Polaris is the second longest existing character in this in the team-up. So Quicksilver was the first one created. Polaris, I believe, would have been second because she was part of the original run on X-Men before the relaunch. And, I mean, for a while there, I don't even know where the status quo is because the status quo keeps flip-flopping about whether or not she's actually Magneto's daughter. Because, you know, she's a mutant with magnet powers. So, obviously, that's who she is. Yeah, we see a lot of insight into her, which is, it's unusual insight. And Anthony was making some nice comments about it before the podcast, so I'll let him... Just fill us all in. Well, this part when you're looking at Lorna, completely independent of anything that happened, apparently she got injured in the battle or the big event that had just happened. And it starts off with the doctor commenting on the fact that her jaw's fully healed. And she automatically goes straight to the fact that she had lost weight. And if you look at it, she's wearing a big bulky sweater and she's wearing big bulky sweatpants. And pretty much the entire insight that we get into her is the fact that she's still that teenage girl with body issues going on the entire time. Now, as I was talking to Blaine right before this podcast started, I don't know how this part sits with me. And why I say that is because you have, well, as we all read comic books and we all see the way that females are predominantly drawn in comic books, you see nothing but six-pack abs. 
So when they're doing this part where she's talking about how she, how fat she is and how disgusted she feels with herself, there's the part of me that looks at it and, you know, from the perspective of it's just showing that, you know, anybody can have body image issues and so on like that. I can appreciate it. But by the same logic, by the same note, I guess, it almost seems... What's the word that I'm looking for? It seems that since you look at the stereotypical way that females are drawn in comic books, almost offensive at the same time. I don't know. Did you get that from a plane? Um, I, I got that it was quite realistic, particularly since when I first read this, prep, preparing for the podcast about a month ago, it was shortly after I saw articles online where in an interview, Scarlett Johansson had openly admitted to having body issues herself. Oh, no, and I'll, and I'll never take away from the fact that, you know, you could be the most beautiful person in the world and still have body issues. I mean, I consider myself to be one of the most beautiful people in the world, and I still have body issues, but that's for a different podcast. But just the way it comes off being my first introduction to the character, had this not been my first introduction and I had some sort of setup before, or even if I got to see what this led to, because, as you said, it's under debate, or it constantly gets changed if she's Magneto's daughter. So, you know, the whole not having parents leading to not caring about yourself and things like that. There are a lot of implications that they could use this to tie into. Just the simple reality from my perspective is I'll probably never get to see any of those implications. So, as a one-off standoff, it just seems oddly placed for me. But outside of that realm, I could see how it could work in very easily. I think it's going to be showing up a lot in this issue. Um, one of the other comments, like, I did like the way in the art. For most of this conversation, she is not making eye contact with the psychiatrist. She's actually looking at the bowl of candy that's in the office instead. Yeah. We're just getting inserts of the candy. And even towards the end, when she is making direct eye contact, we're still seeing the candy with like, an obvious candy smell coming off of it. I'd like to read the rest of Peter David's run to see how this came out. Because, as we said, Polaris has been around for a long time. She hasn't been used that much. She was introduced as a potential love interest for Iceman until they introduced Havoc, who looked at the unconscious green-haired goddess who was in the Shuttlecraft with him and just fell in love. And she promptly dumped Iceman and ended up with Havoc instead. And she and Havoc made multiple attempts to just go live out in the middle of nowhere. This is someone she's been dealing with body issues but she's got major, I think it was, I forget which is which, but between Polaris and Havoc, one has uh, a degree in archaeology, the other one has a degree in geology. So they were kind of out there doing their own research on their own thing on their own. But yeah, a lot of that just, to me, there seems to be some blanks to be filled in because they didn't pick up any of the body issues prior to that, but she'd also had very little character development prior to that. So I'm guessing uh, this could have been well established because Peter David would have taken over and they would have been around issue 69 or 70 of X-Factor. So by the time we get to issue 87, that groundwork could very well have been laid. No, and again, as I said, it's very possible. I um, I think the uh, another interesting part is where she makes the comment, you'll say I'm a blimp compared to Rat, Rain, and Val. They might as well paint Goodrich on my side. And then the psychi uh, psychiatrist responds with, Goodrich doesn't have a blimp. I question why they had that throwaway line in there. And I think it was to show just sort of the anger that she was feeling. It just seemed like such an odd line to toss in there, especially when you think good rich. I'm yeah. wondering, is there a connotation on good rich that I'm just not catching? I know it's supposed to be a play on good year, 
But I'm wondering, is it a candy company? <laughs> I've read Goodrich before, but I think it's just a similar sounding company name that, that have shown up in Marvel Comics sort of as the Goodyear substitute. Fair enough. So from there we go to Guido, who had, as far as I'm aware, before Peter David took over X-Factor, Guido, a.k.a. Strong Guy's entire backstory was a few panels in an issue of New Mutants working as Emma Frost's manservant. So it could very well be more there, but this is nice. We find out that this wisecracking guy on the team, the one who's always, I mean, the way he's describing himself and the way the others refer to him, he's the one that always makes light. He's kind of the class clown in the group that keeps keeps them moving and keeps them smiling. You find out he is in constant pain because of his mutant abilities. I must say the uh, the strong guy part of this I, again, knew absolutely nothing about Strong Guy outside of the fact that he was strong, having not really read any X-Factor and barely ever seeing Strong Guy outside of being in a fight and maybe tossing out a wisecracker too. So I really, really enjoyed the Strong Guy part of this just because it gave a history for a character that I had really never known the history of. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Also, I never really knew what his powers were. So learning that, you know, he takes in the kinetic energy and then uses the kinetic energy and his body absorbs it and then grows and he becomes stronger based on the energy given to him. That's what I'm getting out of this. Am I correct? That's the way I read it, too. This is the first time I've seen his powers explained. Because, oh, again, he's he was the most recent creation. When he was Emma Frost Manservant, I don't even think he had a line. He literally just walked into the room left behind the drinks she ordered, and walked out, and was referred to by name. If they had some lines, they were mostly inconsequential. He wasn't even called Strong Guy, then he was just Guido. But yeah, that's the way I read it, is incoming kinetic energy will deform him, increase his strength, but if he doesn't discharge that energy through some sort of attack, the deformations become permanent. Yeah, so it was very interesting, and I really did enjoy, you know, the buildup of the character, and you know... I'm always just a sucker for the nerd story who becomes a superhero. Hits me close to home. <laughs> yeah. But I'm always a sucker for that kind of story. And I, I thought this was interesting. And now that Blaine said that this was probably the first introduction that most people had, if not everybody had, to his superpowers, I think it was a very, very good addition to this issue. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. That the way it's played out, I would be shocked if we found out about the constant pain prior to this. Yeah, I think that part had to be an addition. We may have learned about his powers when the run kicked off. So from there we go to Jamie Madrox, the Multiple Man, who is the leader of X-Factor in a lot of the more recent incarnations, and was originally created, I think, to fill in a plot hole. Because if you go back to the early Chris Claremont run, so I'm talking about, you know, Giant Size X-Men number one through the John Byrne era, that's when you find out about Moira Island and Moira McTaggart. Now she's got this very extensive mutant research facility. And they need a way to explain how they can run something that complicated and still keep it a secret. And I believe Jamie Madrox was created essentially to explain that. He is the multiple man. He can create duplicates of himself. So you hire one guy and he can do the work of as many as you need as long as he's willing to get smacked around a bit. And this is nice. You find out that he is almost pathologically afraid of loneliness. So he just gets two pages, which is not... A lot of development, but it, reading through it, going back, the little nuggets that we get about everyone, I was surprised that he only had two pages when the others had more, because those two pages do cover quite a bit. The main thing that I got out of these two pages was 
just simply the fact that multiple men doesn't like to be alone, you know, tossing in that beautiful irony. In my personal opinion, and, you know, just from what you said, you may disagree with this, I found this to be one of the weaker parts of the entire issue, just because, you know, other people get, you know, the dark exploratory, and realistically, if you think about it, uh, a lot of the entire comic is fraught with the irony, you know, the super ripped female finds that she's fat, strong guy who's always making laughing jokes, is in constant pain, multiple man, doesn't like to be alone, uh, we're gonna get into Havoc's brother issues in a second. But, I just, in terms of character development, I think they could have done a better job of building this one up. And even, you know, the word association just kind of seems a bit cheesy up until the point where he gets to, well, what word do you associate with alone? And his response is hell. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is short, but I, I feel like we got as much depth in his character as we got from the rest. They just may have had a little bit of a shortcut to get there, which could have been a page count thing. I don't know. Fair enough. He's probably one of the more underdeveloped characters in the comic book as well up until this point, I'd have to assume. Yeah, but my read-through of the the X-Books, I'm not up to 1993 yet. Going mm -hmm. through that X-Men franchise, I'm just a couple issues shy of Inferno in the chronological read. And I've read a few afterwards. So I've read his early appearances, but again, he's a character that didn't get a lot of development. Yeah. But next up, as Anthony said, is Havoc, a.k.a. Alex Summers, Cyclops' younger brother, who was introduced shortly after Polaris in the original run. So as we said, he was basically created to kind of surprise Scott Summers with part of his past, because Scott didn't realize he had a brother due to some repressed memory issues, and to, you know, keep Iceman single and fancy-free by stealing his girlfriend. And we see a lot of... The same sort of issues that Cyclops had, if you go back and read those 1960s X-Men, when Cyclops is given leadership of the team, he's the one going, uh, why me? Excuse me? Why am I in charge? Hello? Uh, did, did, someone must have messed up. You know, Havoc's got the same thing where he doesn't feel like he's re ready and able to lead the team, and yet he's got that job. And in Havoc's case, it's even more compounded because he's seen Cyclops after he's grown into the role. So it is nice. It's funny that you made a reference to the X-Men movies earlier, because any time in comic books I read anything to do with Cyclops, and I don't even know why my mind does this, because I have I was reading comic books before the X-Men movies came out, but I, you know, any chance I have to vent about this, I might as well take about how poorly Cyclops was treated in all of the X-Men movies. Oh, yeah. And... You know, realistically, in terms of comic book movies, this really has to go down as one is the one of the largest cardinal offenses. And it just swings into my mind, especially here where you see uh, Alex Summers, or rather Havoc, talking about how great, how strong his brother is, how he just feels that he's constantly in his brother's shadow, he's not ready to be his brother. And then you look at the horrible, horrible mistreatment of Cyclops in the movies, where... He was reduced to being, you know, almost comedic, borderline inept, and basically as the good boy foiled to make Wolverine look more badass. But I, I digress. I just needed a moment to quickly vent about that. Basically, in this entire part, it's just exploratory about 
the fact that he doesn't feel like he's worthy. He feels that he even says, I always feel like I'm playing catch up with him. So this is just showing the angst that exists between the two brothers at this point in time. But I think it's one of those things they had to use to complete, to keep on building the character of Havoc. They're using many of the same plot devices that they were using back. And when, as Blaine said, Scott Summers didn't feel he was ready to control or to be the head of the X-Men. And I think it's a rhetoric that's constantly put into comic books. And I'm not saying this as a bad thing, but it's constantly put in, especially when you have a new team, that the leader of the new team never feels ready, never feels responsible, never feels that they can overcome the goal, and then they'll be met with hardship, and then hopefully they'll either they'll overcome or they'll subsequently die. One of the two. <laughs> uh, following Havoc, we get a, a repeat visit by Polaris, who came back just to prove that, yeah, she is hot, and point out that she was losing weight before her jaw got broken. And she shows up in the classic 90s outfits that are... Duck Samson responds by saying she's kicking his hormones into overdrive, which I think is partly him playing into what she needed to hear as a psychiatrist, because this is a 1990s comic book hero redesign. If you're not into S&M and Dominatrix, the costumes don't really work. <laughs> it's skin tight, it's revealing, but man, there's a lot of leather and straps. Yeah, it's pretty much Ed Hardy before it was Ed Hardy. But yeah, you know, they had the big reveal of her coming back and showing how hot she is. And as Blaine said, I think it's just more about her character coming full circle in here than anything else. Doc Samson finds her so hot he apparently drops her drops his pen, which comes into play in a second. But we'll get to that in a second. Yep, and that second would be Val Cooper, who was the only character that was a running character in X-Factor before Peter David took over. So she's been the government of X- uh, the government liaison to X-Factor for some time. And it's nice here because one of the issues that they've had is that there's a lot of friction between the government and the mutants. And she was assigned as a mutant expert. I mean, Val Cooper predates X-Factor as a series, let alone in this X-Factor book. She's been an X-Men recurring character for a long time and has been frequently the government liaison to the variant mutant teams. But we also crystal clearly get a, a big difference. Early on, the strong guy kind of warns Rain that shrinks just answer questions with questions and kind of get you to do the work for them. And yet we see Val has done her own assessment of the team, and she is off base about every single one of them. So Doc Sampson has managed to get these characters to open up in ways that she hasn't. We've seen the real picture of them through Doc Sampson. And when he asks Val Cooper for her evaluation of the team, we realize she is universally off the mark. And that's part of the friction that she's having with them is she doesn't really understand the people she's working with. Yeah, and obviously that's one of the big building points about this is she's basically echoing how the characters were probably written and what they were meant to exude the entire time uh, leading up to this. And then it's coming back to the fact that, you know, none of the characters are what they were putting out. Much like human nature, we try to act like the people that we think that we want to be. Or rather the self-ideal, if you're going to go all humanistic on this. But we act like the people that we want to be, as opposed to the people that we sometimes feel we are, or that we actually are. So it was good to read this part and just sort of see how they tie it all around, and how she views each of the different people. And in most cases, it's the exact opposite of how they actually are. 
Yeah, she's basically falling for it because every one of them is putting up an act. Yeah. And she buys the act, whereas Doc Samson got through it. For example, for Guido, who says that, yeah, he's in constant pain, but he doesn't want anyone to know because then they feel sorry for him or pity him, and he couldn't stand that, not from his real and true friends that he's had for the first time in his life. Whereas Val says he's a party guy, totally hedonistic, just cares about himself, real wiseacre, a guy who's feeling no pain. Yeah. Whereas we know he's the class clown because sometimes the class needs a clown to deal with the crap they have to deal with. Exactly. And then we swing into she gets mad at Doc Samson and storms out of his office. They don't really bridge that very, very well, though, because it just sort of comes off that he's slightly ignoring her. He has Rolades in his hand. And then she gets mad at him, storms out of the office, and then snakes grab her. Yeah, it's definitely setting up a later storyline here. And Doc Sampson is a bit oblivious. He's got his report. For him, it was the job, and his job is done. This is at the point where he's realized he's a crappy superhero, and he's just going to be a shrink. That happens to have some strength. So this moment, it's not a great moment for Doc Sampson, but it's a totally in-character moment for Doc Sampson. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, do you know what the storyline they're being set up? What are these snakes that capture her? I don't know. This is, as I said, this is the only issue I've read of the original Peter David run. So if we want to kind of jump around in the order here, in terms of you know why we think it landed in the turn and what deeper meanings it had, this strikes me as something that could be a linchpin and fondly remembered issue of a well-remembered run. But this is one of the few times when I'd say maybe the run belongs here instead of the issue. Yeah, and obviously I haven't read the run. Uh, this issue, I did think it it was good as a culmination issue, just sort of, you know, taking that moment away from all the action, looking at the separate character pieces. And, you know, I have a soft spot for when they do that well. Uh, there was a great issue in one of the Wolverine relaunches where it was him and Nightcrawler just sitting in a bar and Wolverine was just talking about all the people that he's killed and just, you know, how run down he actually is and how he doesn't enjoy killing, yet he constantly does it. And issues like that, I always think they're good because they have their place, but a lot of times you want to see what led up to it or what comes forth, you know. Do they continue on with the development or is it just sort of a one-off where it's called? Uh, that Wolverine issue that I was referencing, you really thought it was going to come off, but I think they switched writers soon after, and it was completely ignored. <laughs> so that was unfortunate. Here, uh, I don't know how much they continue on with the character growth and development. I would like to see what the event that led up to this was that made them all sort of snap and break down and get here, and I would like to see where they go from this. As an issue, I, I think it's a relatively strong issue. As one of the greatest stories of all time, I'd be less likely to say it's one of the greatest stories just because it's not really a story. <laughs> it's yeah. more of a character piece. It's more of like a character profile. It, it is. This is one of the best character examination issues I've seen. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. I understand that the attack on Val Cooper at the end was setting up a future story, clearly. Well, and you have no choice but to do that. Yeah. Well, uh, well you, you could. You could end with her storming out and Leonard Sampson going, where do I send the bill? And find out in the next issue that she's been captured. And then you'd have a complete superhero comic without a single act of violence. Fair enough. Which is unusual. Peter David is really good about breaking molds and doing something you're not expecting him to do. It does have me more interested in going back 
and tracking down more of the issues of Peter David's X-Factor run, because I keep hearing wonderful things about it. And given that, when Geekup was putting out the DVD-ROMs, I realized I had a backlog, and I decided if I'm going to get through these, I need to really sit down and dedicate myself to getting through these. I'm going to start with the character I am least interested in out of all these DVDs, and just start plowing through it until it's done. And for me, that character was the Hulk, where I was making myself read an issue a day. When I hit, hit the Peter David run... I was doing like 12 or 15 issues a day because <laughs> it was just that good. And he showed me that I could like the character. Now you find out he's got a very well-heralded run on X-Factor and this is a piece in the middle. Like Anthony said, I could see this being a major turning point. Yeah. This could be the, the, the sort of like the mid-season finale if it was a TV season. Right? You get those 22 episodes. Sometimes you get like the 10 issue or the 10 episodes. Then there's a break and the 12 issues after it. Right. This could be the, the mid-season break or it could more likely be the... Sort of the bottle episode, the one that comes before the big knockdown dragout fight where you're keeping the budget slow. It'll keep you entertained for the hour and cost you almost nothing in terms of visual effects because it's a bunch of people talking in the psychiatrist office. To quickly interrupt, I really hate how TV now has started overusing the term mid-season finale. And I'm really starting to hate that trend throughout TV. But again, I digress. Yeah, I like the Netflix model. Here's all of it now. Watch at your own pace. Oh, binge-watching is the new TV watching. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is why we're seeing more serialized stories on TV, because now people don't need to miss episodes. Yeah. They used to avoid serialized TV so people could miss episodes and come back, and now it's like, eh, Netflix changed that. You don't need to worry about missing them anymore. Everyone can start from episode one and go forward. I just feel sorry for my parents because they don't have a PBR. <laughs> it makes that a bit more difficult for them. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, I would, I would agree. It's... I see why this is fondly remembered enough that those who read it put it on the tournament and gave it that number of votes. But sitting and reading it in isolation, I don't know if I would put it on there after the fact. Yeah, and as Blaine said, it's uh, in isolation is one of the very, very key terms for this. And also my lack of familiarity with the characters. <laughs> Coming in and reading this issue cold, uh, you get an insight into some characters better than others. But I had to be reminded even who Multiple Man was, because reading his little bit, I didn't recognize that that was Multiple Man. <laughs> so that part was actually lost on me on the first read-through until it was brought up that that was Multiple Man, and then it tied it together quite a bit better. Yeah, and while that's true and I can see that, thinking back to where these characters were introduced and how they were introduced, I would say that this issue, even if it's your first introduction to the characters, will probably give you a better introduction to the characters than their actual introductions. Fair enough. You read like the first 10 appearances of Polaris, you know less about her at that point than you do from here. Ditto for multiple man, even though he has two pages here. <laughs> so I think that covers everything except maybe, you know, the deeper meanings, like in Mission Log. So are there any deeper meanings or messages in here? I think all of the deeper meanings and messages are very, very apparent and being very, very forthright put in front of us. They're using a lot of the classic psychological cliches. And I'm not saying that it doesn't work here, but they simply are using just a lot of the cliches that I referenced before. You have multiple men that's scared to be alone, the strong guy that's always joking but's in constant pain, Polaris, the hottest chick on the team that has crazy body issues, Wolf Spain, who's the youngest person on the team that has a crush on everybody that's older than her putting up power, and then you've got Havoc with his brother issues coming out of everywhere. So... You know, the comic the comic book basically reads like the whole big bevy of 
daddy issues slash brother issues slash all the internal issues. That being said, uh, I do believe that it's a very, very important step towards the humanization of a lot of these superheroes and a lot of these characters. And even when we got the insight into Quicksilver's mind, and as I referenced before, in some ways, and especially from what I remember about reading comic books in the early 90s, like when I sort of go back and read some of them as I got into my teens, you didn't get a lot of character pieces. And, you know, by today's standards in comic books, where all of the characters are heavily, heavily flawed heroes, and there's a lot of angst, and there's a lot of the deeper issues going on, by the standards of that day, it just wasn't apparent, and they didn't have that. So I think it was very, I think this is a very, very important issue in that it broke with a lot of the conventions. This was at the height of Rob Liefeld's popularity. I mean, not to pick on Rob Liefeld himself, aside from how when he was popular, everyone was mimicking him. And so many comics of this time were all action, no character. This is very much a departure from that. And in terms of the other deeper meanings, I, if anything, I would say like one broad theme throughout this is don't judge others because you don't know who they really are. Yeah. Right. And that's what's happening here. A lot of them, they're putting up one facade to convince you that they're not who they are insecure or believe that they actually are. But yeah, in terms of the impact on the story and the industry, there's very few in terms of lasting continuity-driven events here. I mean, what have we got? Val Cooper cut kidnapped. And I don't think you'd be too hard-pressed to find someone who says that they're an X-Men fan who couldn't tell you who Val Cooper is. I think it's, as you said, it's that bridging issue. It's that middle issue. The impact was very, very clearly right before where something did happen to Professor X again. And the implications were all probably taken up in the issues right after. So in terms of the lasting impression of this issue, even like completely independent from its story or completely independent from the quality of the issue, it just doesn't have that lasting impact. The only impact I can think is if they explored some of the issues further. Uh, some of the characters, maybe someone like Polaris, they would have. Obviously with Havoc, they've explored his brother issues quite a bit and it's you know was a reoccurring theme for many 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 years but then going back to something like strong guy again not having read anything but it was probably never brought up again and he was just used to be the comedic foil maybe multiple man they brought you know played into it again probably not and for wolfsman they probably would use the crush thing again but yeah. In a very innocent way, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's I I expect a, a lot of this to come up again in later issues, mostly because Peter David has now written over all the different series. He's written over 100 issues of X-Factor using largely the same cast. Fair enough. So I'm confident that a lot of these threads were picked up on by this writer. So he kept going as part of the larger tapestry. I don't know, aside from Havoc and his brother issues, I don't know how much has been cropping up in other stories. Yeah, so it's I, in terms of reading it, I enjoyed it well enough. I wouldn't go out of my way to read it. From the reputation, it may be worth reading this as a larger part of reading the full Peter David run. Because this is the kind of issue that I said, it's it, it's the kind of nice character examination that could elevate the entire run. And people recognize this is the turning point, but it doesn't work on its own. It could be actually probably the best TV comparison, now that I think about it, might be the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where the characters reveal secrets that they were hiding and it changes the emotional tone for the viewer. 
But in terms of actual, like aside from what they learned in those conversations, it's not like they blew up Sunnydale or introduced new characters or got rid of existing characters. Yeah, like to me, are the sentiment again. As an issue, it was a very good issue. As a story, I'd say not as much. And that's pretty much, I don't think it could be put any better than that. Yeah. All right. So uh, if you're reading along at home, next week's issue will be the podcast about Thor 362. That has been reprinted in Thor Visionaries, Walt Simonson, Volume 3, God Size Thor, and it's also available through Marvel Digital Unlimited and Comixology. So join us next week for that. Anthony, thank you again for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Blaine. It was a pleasure. And for the listeners at home, please feel free to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher and to share the links to the podcast with anyone else who you think might be interested, because that's, quite frankly, I'm more interested in reaching more people and getting more feedback through email or through the Facebook forum that we have, or through Bureau42.com itself, than in the reviews. I'd rather know people are enjoying it that way. So please join us again next week, and thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.